This morning we are moving to the second commandment of the ten, so I'd like to begin by reading it together uh, from, the, from the shorter catechism, which is in your hymnal. So it's on page 873 in the back of the red hymnal. We have the whole of the shorter catechism, and we'll look this morning at question 49, which recites for us the second commandment, and also question 51, which tells us what's forbidden. So, so let's um, recite these together. I'll ask the question, and we all can respond with the answer. Which is the second commandment? in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And then question 51. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Thank you. The Catechism, of course, was written in the 1640s, so some of the language sounds perhaps a little strange to us, but it's uh, helpful for us to uh, review it and get a summary of the doctrines of our church. Um, We'll be in Exodus 20. That's on page 54 in the Pew Bibles as we start there this morning. I knew a guy once who never killed spiders, he was a card-carrying member of, like, literally he had a card that he carried in his wallet that made him a part of this group that uh, said that humans should never kill spiders. And he could tell you all of the great things that spiders did, how spiders get rid of other insects, how spiders don't over-infest and destroy things, but how they are this unique balance in nature, and, you know, all of these kind of things. And so somehow, even though I met this guy many years ago and have had no contact with him since, every time I kill a spider, I feel guilty about it. Like I think about him. And so today, as I was driving uh, somewhere, there was one of those times when the spider like comes down from your window, and you, never, you don't know if you know, he's going to drop into your lap, and so what you do is you kill him. And then you feel bad about it. Well, why would I ever kill a spider if I feel guilty about it, right? The answer is this. I'm happy for spiders to flourish. I'm happy for them to catch flies. I'm happy for them to catch mosquitoes, to spin their webs, to look at how beautiful they are and everything. As long as they don't come in my car or in my house, and if they do, they're, they're welcome to, you know, be fruitful and multiply in nature, but I've established this boundary 
that they may not cross as a part of me exercising my God-given dominion over my, the little part of God's creation that he has entrusted to me. God's commandments are like that. They graciously provide this context for human flourishing in God's word, world. They graciously establish boundaries to keep us from harming ourselves and others. The creator makes the rules of his creation, and just as there is no other creator, there are no other rules. There is no other moral system that works in our world. And that's why Jesus said that the commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves is the summary of the whole law. The context for the law is the rescue from slavery. And that has to come first. And religion says I must do certain things in order to be saved. But God has turned this on its head. And he said, you are saved by grace. You are saved because I've adopted you freely into my family because I loved you and I wanted to. And so I give you room to flourish. And I also give you boundaries so that you won't hurt yourself and others. And that's why it's important for us as we talk about the Ten Commandments, and that's the way I want us to think about them. Again, the world thinks these are rules. In a way, they are, but they're gracious rules. They're not rules to get God's favor. They're rules to live and flourish in God's world. So let's, uh, we'll read Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the context. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, indeed now as we want to look at your holy word, as we want to understand your commandments, as we want to learn how to live in your world, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide and that you would speak powerfully through me to all of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The second commandment gives us two related commands. Don't make an image or idol of anything in the creation. And don't bow down and worship them. We're dividing this commandment into two sermons. This week we'll talk about the danger of idolatry and how images can lead us astray. And next week we'll talk about how God calls us to worship him. So we'll look at sort of the negative side this morning, and then we'll look at the positive command part of the command uh, next week. Also, I, want, I think it's important to mention how the first and second commands relate to each other. As Pastor Steve said last week, the first commandment tells us that there's only one true God and that we can't have rivals in our hearts. We can't have gods beside him or before him. The second commandment goes to the next step and tells us how do we approach God? 
How can we worship him? How can we draw near to him? And the two are related because if you try to worship God in ways of your own choosing, what ends up happening is that you end up sort of making him into a different God and breaking the first commandment. Does that make sense? So the two are related to one another, and we'll see it as we go. Sometimes the Bible seems pretty foreign to us, and I think this commandment is one of those times because we don't really have the context of worshiping idols and images as a part of our modern lives for the most part. Of course, many people in many places practice this kind of worship still today, similarly to the pagan nations described in the world of the Bible. But us, probably not so much. And so this doesn't mean it's not relevant. It just means that we have to kind of unpack how do we face similar temptations, but that may look different, that may have something of a different form. We do see in Scripture, of course, how this was a huge problem for ancient Israel and Judah. How it was one of the main reasons for their exile from from Babylon. God had brought them into the promised land. He had given it to them as a gift. He said, worship me in particular ways. And one of the things that the prophets said over and over and over again was, don't make idols, don't worship God the way the pagans do. And because the people of God were stubborn and rebelled against him, that's one of the reasons for the exile, or the main reason for the exile in Babylon. In the ancient Near Eastern world, and again in many parts of our world today, an idol or an image or a pillar, you know, we can think of totem poles, we can think of the things that people build as an indispensable part of their worship. The image represents the power of the deity. If you didn't have an image, then you really couldn't show how your God was powerful. Does that make sense? We don't think that way, but that's the way people think in a way. Gods were in charge of certain things, and the idol was the way to connect, the, connect with the power of that God, with his power in that certain kind of limited kind of way. Uh, so idols weren't like pictures. They weren't designed to capture what a god looked like, but they represented the character of the deity, and so they would have different characteristics depending on what kind of deity it was, if it was the weather god or the fertility god or, or whatever. And so on the one hand, people didn't really think that the idol was the same thing as the god, right? They didn't probably believe that this stone statue or this block of wood or this pillar had the power to save them or had the power to provide rain for them. So they didn't really, I mean, you know, this wasn't their God in a way. But on the other hand, that they did think that this thing connected them to the representative power of God in a significant way. They localized, they focused their worship on this idol, this image, this pole, or or whatever it was. In our terms, I mean, how would we think about it? It's part good luck charm, it's part sort of superstitious object, it's part religious symbol, it's part bargaining chip, it's, it's the way to represent the power of God, your God, and to try to connect to it. 
And so you get the idea that what happens is that this idol, this image, is, becomes a part of a religious transaction. Sacrifices made to the idol put the God in your debt. The greater thing you sacrifice, the greater you expect that that God will help you or answer your prayer. You do certain things to get certain outcomes, or at least to sort of make them more probable. That's the whole idea. But the message of the Bible, of course, is not based on transactions. It's based on a relationship with the true God. And so idols and images distort relationship and they turn it into transaction. And I want to look for us this morning at three different aspects to this. There are lots of them. There are lots of ways that idols distract our hearts. But I want to three, uh, we'll look at three that we see in Scripture. First, people use images and idols from a desire to control events from a desire to, again, achieve the kind of outcome that they want. In 1 Samuel 4, there's this interesting account of which the people of Israel have been defeated in battle against the Philistines. I'm going to read part of this from 1 Samuel 4, starting in verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may, or he, may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, with, uh, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, All Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines uh, asked, What is the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What's going on here? The Israelites are using the ark of the covenant in the same kind of ways that their enemies would use a pagan idol. They're seeking a victory, so they're bringing the ark along, thinking they can't lose if God is with them. And certainly this is not how God intended the Ark of the Covenant to be used. And so he doesn't operate in a way that they think. He doesn't allow himself to be used like the gods of the nations. And the story continues, and it's this, it's really comical, you should read it. Not right now, but read it this week. 
you know, the ark comes into the Philistine camps and then they start to have these plagues upon them and they put it in their temple and their stone god to Dagon like bows down before it and they find him in the morning, they put him back up and then he bows down again and you know, it's, so, the, so they're like, we got to get rid of this thing and so they send it back to Israel. God can take care of himself right? The story demonstrates that God doesn't play according to human rules. He can't be manipulated into being a good, good luck charm in order that his people would win a battle. And this is in an enormous contrast with the pagans around them. As we heard, the Philistines are terrified because they understand how gods and idols work. And they think that the God who, who did all these things to the Egyptians is there in the camp, and an Israelite can use them. The Israelites can use him in order to make him do what they want him to do. But God doesn't play according to those rules. And I think it means the same thing for us, that images and idols and the like, superstitious objects, things that become important to us, can undermine our trust in God's sovereign plan for our lives. God's plan for us can't be manipulated as much as we might like to know what will happen or as much as we might like God to do what we want, uh, God to bless what we want to do. It doesn't really work like that. God wants to live in a relationship with us, which means that we trust him and that we live faithfully along the path that he's putting before us. People use idols and images in order to try to control events. They also use them in order to, from a desire, I think, to live by sight rather than by faith. In Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf that was made by Aaron for the people when when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. We're probably familiar with the story. Verse 4 of Exodus 32 says... And he, that is Aaron, took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods. That could be, this is your God. The Hebrew word for gods is always plural, if that makes sense. So it could be, these are your gods, or this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in revelry. In these verses, we see that Aaron has made a golden calf, but in his mind, it doesn't seem like he thinks this is incompatible with the worship of God. He used a bull to symbolize the power of Yahweh, of God, and the festival, it says, is a festival to Yahweh. So Aaron is choosing to make this image or idol that the people could see so that they would think, so that they would know that God was present with them. Aaron, of course, should have known better. The Ten Commandments had just been given perhaps within the last couple of weeks. 
This is a testament, though, to how strong this impulse was for people to make a physical representation of their God, to make an idol and to worship before it. They wanted to worship God in the ways that people had worshipped gods in Egypt, by seeing them, by, see, by, ha- by them having a form that they could focus on and, and localize. The huge problem, of course, is that such a representation of God, of the true God, makes him seem tame and small and simple. He's just reduced to a few characteristics. He's made on human terms. God the Father is a spirit. He can't be represented by anything in his creation. And images distort this idea because they make God a part of the creation. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how God's invisible, his invisible characteristics can be seen through his creation. But people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of men and animals and birds and all of the things within the creation. So God is no longer separate from his creation and transcendent above it, but he's been made a part of it. And this idolatry, Paul says, leads to this exchange of the truth about God into lies about him. And then Paul says this breeds all kinds of sin. And that's the same kinds of sin that the people committed right after worshiping the golden calf in this story. The desire to make the invisible God into a visible form is a desire to live by sight. And a choice to make a God from the stuff of the creation rather than knowing that he's above the creation and believing that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him as that is the description of faith that we find in Hebrews 11.6. Faith is undermined if we try to turn it into sight if we try to capture the invisible God transcendent above his creation within something within the creation. Finally, people use images and idols for, from a desire for grace and blessing. This again this connects to this idea of a religious transaction. An idol makes me feel more comfortable. It makes me feel like the God is near. It makes me feel like he or she, whatever, will bless me. There's an interesting story in Numbers 21. The people of Israel were complaining against God, and then these venomous snakes, you may remember this story, these venomous snakes came and started to attack them, and so the people cried out to the Lord in repentance. And so God told Moses to make a bronze snake, and everyone who looked on the snake would be healed from the venomous snake bite. Perhaps you remember how Jesus referred to this event by putting himself into the middle of it, by saying it pointed to him. In John 3, Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The salvation that God extended to complaining and rebellious people in the Old Testament is a picture 
of the salvation that Jesus is extending, the real salvation, not just from physical snake venom, but from all sin, the salvation that Jesus is extending to sinners. So the bronze snake was a symbol of God's mercy, and it points to Jesus. But even such a good thing can become a snare and an idol. I had never read this before this week, as I recall. In 2 Kings 18, King Hezekiah launched a campaign to get rid of idols from the land of Israel and says this, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, I think I'd read this before, but it had never connected to me. This is crazy, right? Six or eight hundred years later, the people were using the bronze snake as an idol to try to gain God's blessing. And I guess they thought that that's the, the snake blessed us once or was the means by which God blessed us, so maybe we can you know, try to appeal to it again that, that it would be the means by which God will bless us again. They believed that the object was the means to gain the blessing. And it's not that they didn't believe in God. It's that they had a, created a system in which God's grace was mediated to them through an object. God's grace was given to them through this thing, that the object had, in some sense, divine power to bless them. And this is just this transaction-based approach to God that betrays that our hearts are not content with the grace that he has already given us. It betrays that we want more from him and that we'll try to manipulate him to get what we really want. I hope that this makes sense, how we have, how there's, we see this kind of idolatrous distortion, how it undermines our understanding of God and how to have a relationship with Him. The things that people are looking for in the idol are really, really poor substitutes for Jesus. The idol puts you in control the idol lets you see God on your own terms. The idol gives you a blessing. But this is, this is a disaster. You don't need a way to gain more blessings from God. Jesus provides grace that is sufficient. He gives us every spiritual blessing. His grace is limitless and effectual. You don't need to see a visible representation of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has made God visible to us, not in a picture, but in his words and in his deeds and in his teaching. And so the Bible gives us something better than any kind of piece of art or any part of the creation that, we could, that anyone could make because we see Jesus in action, showing us the Father and telling us how we can know him and live forever. 
You don't need to control your life according to your tiny vision. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, working out a plan to save for himself a people, and working out a plan to make everything new and to provide complete and total redemption for his people and a purification of the whole world. If Jesus is working towards that end, why do you feel like we need to sort of manipulate him according to our little vision based on what we can see and what we think that we want? So it's clear that idols, what idols are selling us is so much less than what Jesus offers us. Because he offers us a relationship with God. And all the blessings that come as children who are adopted into the family of the Heavenly Father. These idols create distortions that tempt us to believe that God is like Santa Claus or he's like the man-made gods that come from the human imagination. That come from the creation and not from the Creator. What does this mean practically for us? There are lots of things to think about. What does it mean about as we think about visual arts and religious imagery? The Old Testament temple had beautiful artistic weavings. It had religious objects like the candlesticks and the great bronze bowl that sat on these 12 bronze bowls that they used to collect the blood. These were magnificently crafted, but they were not a representation of God in any kind of way. That's the distinction. Churches can be magnificently decorated. We can have stained glass windows. We can have mosaics. We can have all kinds of beautiful things within them. That's what it means uh, to, uh, to be human and to have power of art and, and creativity that God gives as a gift. But the danger is if or how we try to represent the persons of the Trinity. That's where people run into problems. What about pictures of Jesus, for instance? This is an issue of debate about which Christians have disagreed about the right application of this commandment over many centuries. Many centuries. This past semester, I read a treatise that was written by Theodore Abukura. He was one of the first Christian apologists and scholars to write in Arabic. He died somewhere around 820, 825, something like that. He wrote a treatise on the right use of images in Christian worship in contrast to how the Muslims and their tradition forbid all use of religious imagery. So the debate has been going on for a long time. Our Reformed tradition, rising in the 16th century, was concerned about the problem that was around it, veneration of statues and images, along with relics and objects of worship that look like superstition. It looks like idolatry. And so rightly, our Reformed uh, you know, forefathers sought to remove these things from the churches and to teach the people to worship God as he tells us to worship him in the Bible. And we'll talk more about that next week. But generally, in our tradition, the use of images of any person of the Trinity is, is frowned upon and is something that we don't 
uh, encourage within our churches. While sincere Christians have differed about this, the point of the commandment is that the problem is really real. The humans tend to fixate on objects, and perhaps we aren't always aware that this can be harmful to our faith. So I'm not making a hard and fast rule that you should never have a picture of Jesus in your house or something like that. I I think it's an issue of the heart. Are you depending on something to feel closer to Jesus? Are you treating something with a kind of reverence that's reserved for God alone? And I would say it this way. In this case, the word is worth much more than a thousand pictures. What we see of God the Father, of God the Son, of God the Holy Spirit in Scripture is so much better and so much more complete than any kind of artistic representation that anyone could make. The Word, and that's part of the, the heritage of the Reformation, is that the Word is central. And the Word tells us and shows us exactly who Jesus is and how He, he is the image of the invisible God. As we consider this commandment for the week ahead, I hope that you know something more about the danger of idols and why the Bible forbids the use of images in worship from ancient times until today. I want you to believe that God is really powerful and that he really cares for you. Idols tempt us otherwise. Idols tempt us to take matters in our own hands, to make God small, to work to gain his grace, to live under a transaction. But Jesus offers us the reality of sovereign care and fullness of grace as we live by faith and not by sight. Finally, think about these distortions and consider them. While they may, while they may not in your life be connected to some object, to break the power, of, we can make idols in our heart. We don't have to connect them with an object, right? To break the power of idol, idols in your heart, make a list of one of these or all of these three things. What do I feel like I need to control? What do I need to trust God with and live by faith? What am I discontent about that I feel like I need more grace and that His grace isn't enough for me. Write, the, write it down. Make a list. Write it down. Confess it before God and ask God to change you. This, I think, is the way that we can take this second commandment and make it real for us this week. God wants to live in a relationship with you, an honest relationship, not a transaction. Jesus came so that we can truly know the grace of that God has for all who believe in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, as we consider these things, we pray that you would remove from us our idols, whatever they are, whether they're just thoughts that live within us or images in our minds. We pray that you would break in us this desire to live according to a transaction and help us to live according 
to a relationship with you. And we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you meet with your people. We thank you that you're, you're near and that you're everywhere, even though we can't see you. We thank you for the Spirit that you've sent to live inside of us and to draw us into wisdom and to give us grace. We pray that you would make these things even more uh, apparent and real to us this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.